Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 167 of the Intercooler Podcast with Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel. Um, Now occasionally we do profiles, we take a full episode of the podcast to profile a very significant and interesting person from the world of cars. Um, Often they'll be the founders, as it is this week. Uh, where we've chosen the founder of Lotus, Colin Chapman. Um, <clears throat> this is hopefully a, a thorough, detailed um, biography of the man, because he he was a fascinating character, um, and he lived a really remarkable life, achieved extraordinary things um, on the road car side and in motorsport, of course, as well. Um, so hopefully it's an interesting episode. Enjoy it. Let us know. But before we get stuck in, I will just remind you all to rate and review the podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, if you listen most weeks, please just give it a review, give it a rating. It really helps. And while you're doing that, just hit the follow button or the subscribe button. That's basically how we find a bigger audience. Um, So it's really important. And it also means you don't miss a single episode. So please do that and enjoy this one. Thank you. He was known as Colin Chapman, but actually his full name was Anthony Colin Bruce Chapman. And if you look at the Lotus logo... yeah. um, Actually, I've I've long wondered what those letters stood for, um, and only oh, only researching this this morning did I realise his name wasn't just Colin Chapman; it was Anthony Colin Bruce Chapman. So you do see the ACBC in the logo, yeah, um, you do. Which is so that's his full name. Now we want to give a full picture of this man, don't we? Yeah. Um, and there's there's no doubt he was a genius and a pioneer, um, but we're not going to pretend he was an angel. Um, and there's there are some interesting sides to his story that we we are going to touch on. Um, there's a there's, there's a book by a motoring journalist called Mike Lawrence. Um, yes, I saw. Which is have you seen it? It's quite yeah. a, it's quite a sort of um, what's the word? He doesn't hold back. Yes, um, <laughs> and uh, if you want a sort of a very um, colourful 
description of the man and his achievements and everything else. Uh, but so the reason I mentioned it is it's called Wayward Genius, yeah. which I think is about as good a description of Chapman as as you'll ever come across. Yeah, I mean, an amazing man. Mm. Uh, what's your take on where the word Lotus came from? Or can't we talk about it on this podcast? Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to mention it. So as far as I understand, um, the exact reason died with Chapman. Well, no, no one knows. And he, he never confirmed exactly why he called it Lotus. Um, but the story that I read was that he called his um, then-girlfriend, later-wife, Hazel, uh, Lotus, Lotus Blossom. Blossom. So yeah. it was a, an affectionate nickname, and yes. he just pulled it. There are there. so many rumours yeah. that <laughs> swirl about. Um, yeah, a few of them have something to do with... Um, as you say, his then girlfriend, uh, then wife, not all to do with um, Lotus Blossom, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? That you name a car company and mm. nobody actually ever knows knows why uh, yeah. what, what what the but but I think that that's just the sort of thing that sort of adds to the the mystique of the man. Yeah, it um, does. It does, and that's right. And hopefully, in this episode, we'll tell you a few things about Colin Chapman that you didn't know before. Um, yeah. and why are we doing this now? Um, because it's this year. It's seventy five years since Chapman built his very first car yes um, it, it this was before lotus however yeah. lotus cars in the lotus formula one team they have their origins in that very first car the mark one he called yeah. it that he designed and built in 1948 so this was four years before he even well found it was a lotus. modified yes he it modified was. it was an austin seven trials car yeah um yeah. But, I mean, that's where it all comes from. Mm. Most things, it all comes from somewhere. I mean, the first car that Ferrari built wasn't called a Ferrari. It was called mm. an Auto Avia Construzione or something, which was made in 1940. But, mm. you know, that's the fir- in all but name, that's the first Ferrari. And that Mark I was, was the first Lotus. And it's, yeah. Yeah. it's interesting, all this stuff going on at the moment. There's, seven, there's 75 years of Porsche and 75 years of Goodwood. And um, there's some big McLaren Avia. Nobody seems to be talking about 75 years of Lotus. No. Well, I guess maybe they're waiting for... I mean, the company was founded in 1952, wasn't it? I guess. Um, so perhaps there, perhaps that's the anniversary. But I, this is as good a time to do it as any, because as you say, everything Lotus has done ever since mm. has its origins in that little Austin 7, that modified Austin 7 that he built in 1948. Um, and he he built it in just a garage, like a lockup, belonging to his girlfriend's parents. Um, and it was... Uh, it used... A composite made of thin aluminium bodywork bonded to plywood. Um, as you say, it was a trials car and he competed in it with some success. Um, and he, he did so with his then girlfriend Hazel. And we, we've mentioned Hazel already a few times because actually she's quite important to the Colin Chapman and the Lotus story. And this is from Lotus's own website. To describe her as merely Colin Chapman's wife is to do her an incredible disservice. In reality, she was the co-founder of Lotus, a successful racing driver, a shrewd businesswoman, and the rock upon which the Lotus foundations have been solidly built. She also provided the first loan that Chapman used to found Lotus Engineering in 1952. And actually, she lived on until two years ago. I was going to say, I thought, thought, yes, I, I thought she only died a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, she yeah, must have struggling. made a fine old age. She must have because she would have been born in the twenties. Yeah, I think um, I think into well into her nineties. Yeah. Um, so she, yeah, a good old innings that one. Um, so that's why we're doing this now. That Mark One is seventy-five years old um, this year. So let's go all the way back though. Colin Chapman, 
born 19th May 1928 in Richmond, London. Um, and he studied structural engineering at University College London, um, then joined the RAF um, on national service. Um, he also, while at university, joined the, the London Air Squadron uh, and learned to fly. So it's, it's really important that he had this sort of background in aviation. Um, because that's Particularly where, from an aerodynamics point of view. And materials as well. Um, yeah. And that's where he started working with aluminium. Um, and even in his very earliest days, perhaps even when he was still a t- teenager, he was working with aluminium and realising the benefits of lightweighting and lightweight materials. Um, and also, it which was is a just very so key to the Lotus story, isn't it? It, is, it, was also, it was a very fortuitous time yes. to do that. I mean, the reason that Land Rovers run up to when the old Defender went out of production in 2015, 2016 were aluminium, mm. was there was just so much of the stuff knocking about from scrapped military um, machines after mm. the war. Mm. Um, and so it was the natural material to use. Uh, so many people used it not because it was light or because it was corrosion resistant they used it because it was just cheap and about it was abundant yeah um yeah and chapman took it and and and, and put it to purposes which had never been used to before there, there's something about the perfectly fortuitous timing of colin chapman's birth that i think we have to address had he been born i don't know 10 years earlier he'd have been enlisted in the war wouldn't he and who knows what might have become of him um, yeah, but but also he he existed in a time in motor. And can you imagine if he was, I don't know, thirty now, mm. presented with a rule book as it is? Well, I think it would have driven right. him up the wall. Quite right. Um, it was a time when true innovation. Yeah. you know, advantages weren't gained by tiny, tiny, sometimes invisible little changes here and there, and mm. myriad, th- hundreds of thousands, which all together add up to a, a few tenths. Um, he could make a completely different sort of, you know, he made a, a car with a gas turbine engine, cars with four-wheel drive, Formula mm. One racing cars. Um, a lot of his stuff didn't work, um, but it was he was around at a time where he could give complete freedom to his extraordinarily creative yes. mind yeah. and its engineering talent and you're absolutely right um actually i think also if he'd been around that much earlier and he'd been doing this before the war um the materials wouldn't have been there the technology wouldn't have been there i think he would he you know i, I he wouldn't have found it frustrating because he wouldn't have known any better but i think he wouldn't have made the advances that no. he went on to make at any other time other than the period in which he lived hmm. That's right. And actually, Formula One was sort of a bit of a boys club then. And it wasn't the multi-billion dollar industry it is today. So it's, no. it's more accessible for a small outfit yeah. like, like Lotus. Um, and as you say, the, really, in hindsight, some of the earlier things that he did were obvious. Lightweighting. We just take that for granted now. But mm. it wasn't being done in Formula One back then. Um, and some of the other innovations we'll come to, like a monocoque. I mean, that wasn't the first monocoque car, the Lotus 25. Um, but no one had done it in Formula One racing before. Nobody had done it in Formula One, yeah. So he, or, or the opportunity was almost begging, wasn't it? And he was the one who did it. Um, yeah. But let's not skip ahead too far. So after the Mark I 
became the Mark II. Um, and actually, he just he numbered his cars numerically. Mark was replaced by t- uh, Type later on. Um, and even in those early years, um, he was starting to build these... Uh, there were racing cars really to begin with, and they were they were popular. And he was there was enough demand um, to build dozens of these cars. Um, and then in 1957, it was the Lotus Seven, um, and that's where things really took off. And of course, it's the the Lotus Seven that we still know today as the Caterham Seven. Um, and the, his cars were lighter, smaller, nimbler than the competition. They had better handling. They certainly I, were not just about more power. Can I? Can I just give a? Yeah, well, exactly. Can I just give a, a shout out to um, a few others? There was the he used. He, I think he used. You, you're talking about him using Mark then later. I actually think he used Roman numerals up until about the um, the Mark Nine. Mm. Um, and I think the first car to actually call itself a Lotus um, was the Mark Three, which was yeah. Um, his first sort of circuit racer. Uh, the six is the Lotus six is an incredibly important. If you look at it, you'll see a Lotus seven, mm. uh, and the seven was quite different under the skin. But that design, that sort of sports racer uh, design, which frankly is still being made by Caterham today. Yeah. So the six, which came out in fifty two, I think, is an incredibly important car. Um, and cars like the eight and the nine were the cars that really established Lotus as a presence on the racetrack. Uh, these were very, very streamlined. Uh, I think he was using Frank Costin by then, uh, who'd been working for de Havilland. So, you know, another reason to him, for him to be thankful for his um, apprenticeship in the, um, in the Air Force. And then, of course, from a road car point of view, um, the 7 came along. And what he would do is... The kit cars were nothing new when the 7 came along. But what he would sell you the kit... But it would have all the bits in it. So I think with things like the six and also other kit cars, you know, you not only had to source your own engine, you had to get mm-hmm. your own gearbox, you had to go and get your own axles, that sort of thing. Um, and although the Lotus kit cars were more expensive, um, I think it was about something like five hundred quid for a seven, which doesn't sound like much now, does it? But it, back then mm-hmm. it was a lot of money. Um, that got you everything. Mm. That got you your engine, your full gearbox, kit. your suspension, full kit, like let me like, like they do today. Yeah. Um, and, and he reckons that you could turn that kit into a car over a weekend. Really? Blimey. Yeah. yeah. We Gosh. tried to do it. I mean, this is jumping ahead of it. In 1992, me and a few mates, James May being one of them, um, we got a, kit, a Lotus a Caterham kit on a Friday evening with the aim of driving a car um, out of the shed where we built it on a Monday morning. It didn't quite happen like that because mm. it was, uh, well, they didn't supply all the bits. Um, but anyway, what we did create, which was almost all the car, went back to Caterham and, and we were told that it was the worst built car that they'd ever seen, <laughs> which we were quite proud of. But anyway, that's, a, that's an aside. We did so, something yes. similar at Evo a few years ago, actually. Um, a few of us were tasked with throwing this thing together. None of us had any clue what we were doing. I think we probably got a third of the way through. It went back to Caterham and they finished it or probably restarted it and then finished it yeah i, th- um, I think the car because yes. I, mean, I, I the car we built i ran as my long term for six months um and i think a clutch cable went and that was it and we did whatever it was i did you know five figure summer miles in it um yeah. drove it all around france everything never went wrong so they must have rebuilt it 
Because yeah. if, if if the car we built <laughs> we'd done that, it wouldn't have gone off the end of the drive. Um, <laughs> no, exactly. But yes. Anyway, so anyway, so we, we we digress. Yeah, yeah. The seven. I mean, I think we, I think we know the story. I mean, it's probably worth dwelling on a little bit because yeah. um, it's almost exactly fifty years ago that Colin Chapman absolutely bored with the seven, which by then was already a like a fifteen year old car, and he wanted to take his road car business into a much higher and mm. mighty place, sold the rights and the jigs and the production tooling and everything else to a bloke called um Graham Nern, uh, who was a Lotus dealer down in Caterham. Um and Caterham Cars was was created then. Mm. Um and we will see at the Festival of Speed, when is it in a couple of weeks' time, um this new Caterham five, um the super streamlined ev caterham vision of the future um so it's kind of interesting isn't it you know you get something like that and you trace it back and it still all ultimately comes down to colin designing the lotus 7 in the late 1950s yeah yeah it does and actually the the 7 really typified what lotus was about then and to some extent at least continues to be about now um lighter smaller nimbler better handling not about power he's his famous yeah. quote is saying, adding, adding power makes you faster on the straights. Subtracting weight makes you faster everywhere. And it, again, yeah. blindingly until obvious something falls, now, Until something falls oh, off it. Oh, God, that's a whole other matter, isn't it? <laughs> um, no, which it, it did. It's blindingly obvious now, but it, it, took, it still took someone to actually put that logic into practice. And Chapman was the man. Yeah, I mean, you're right about um, reliability and cars breaking, particularly in racing. We'll come back to yeah. some of those um, a little bit later on. But first, I want yeah, to I mean, discuss... The, Go on. So I was just going to say the seven. I mean, it was so successful. It was so good that in club racing, there would, there would be clubs that just wouldn't have them anymore because there was mm. no point because it, if people knew they were going to be sevens racing, they just wouldn't bother to turn up. Mm. And so Lotus then were able to make this big noise, publicity noise about so fast it's been banned from racing. Yeah. Too fast to race. Mm. Um, which was brilliant for it. So Fantastic. Yeah, love them. Well, let's talk about Colin Chapman, the driver. Yeah. Because he was a very skilled driver himself. Um, and he, certainly at sort of club level, um, even in his very earliest days when he was doing trials and the circuit racing, he was very competitive. Won plenty of races. He entered one Formula One Grand Prix. Yeah, I discovered this today. Same. I would have thought this is something that I'd have known, but it was literally yeah. why, while researching this... And he binned it in practice. <laughs> he did. The 1956... Into his teammate, I think. He did. The 1956 French Grand Prix at Reims. Um, he was driving yeah. a van wall. Um, and Mike Hawthorne was his teammate in a similar van wall. Um, and he, he did manage to qualify. He qualified fifth ahead of Mike Hawthorne. Ahead of Sterling Moss. Did he a, qualify? Yes, he did. Yeah, he did. Um, I think it was later in the session... That he, he, you're right, he crashed um, at the hairpin. He locked a brake and hit Hawthorne, his teammate. Um, and Chapman's car was damaged beyond repair, which is why he never started the Grand Prix. Um, Hawthorne, they repaired his car and he did race. Um, but I've, I've checked several different websites, um, yeah. including other reliable ones. He qualified fifth um, ahead you see, of Mike I Hawthorne. Mean- and he was in a van wall because Lotus was responsible for developing the chassis of the van wall. Uh, van wall famously being the first British car company to win the Constructors' Championship. In fact, it won the inaugural 
Constructors' Championship. Um, and I don't think that people necessarily appreciate Colin's role in all mm. of that. But mm. he was an amazing driver. There's a If you go on YouTube, there is a one-mate race yeah. where they got all the team managers. Do you know about this? Yes, I've seen it, yeah. Yeah. Um, what were they in? Was it Cort- Cortinas? I think it was Cortinas. Yeah. Or was it Cortinas? Was it Escorts? Oh, maybe it was. I think there might have been an escort. I got so long since I've seen it, I can't remember. But anyway, go on it. Um, and, he, and he's up there, and he's duffing up Jack Brabham. I mean, it is extraordinary. <laughs> um, just how... I mean, would he have been Jim Clark good? Probably not. Um, and certainly, he was far too valuable a resource um, designing cars, A, for him not to be distracted by, by racing them, but also in that era to risk the chance of something awful happening. Yeah. So he stopped. So... A heck of a driver, and I think maybe we should just mention Jim Clark because this fits in quite nicely. Now, the the Jim Clark Colin Chapman thing, again, that relationship is absolutely integral to the story of Chapman, the story of Lotus. Um, they first met on Boxing Day, nineteen fifty eight, uh, when Jim Clark entered a race um, at Brands Hatch driving a Lotus Elite. Now, Colin Chapman was in that race driving a Lotus Elite. Um, Chapman won ahead of Clark um, so well there you go I mean that was a young inexperienced Jim Clark but you don't beat Jim Clark in the same car without being a heck of a driver I found this wonderful extract from a story that Colin Chapman wrote about Jim Clark um, and I think it's worth just reading some of it now because it gives you an idea of how they met um, and why Colin Chapman thought so much of this young Scottish racing driver. He wrote, The first I ever heard of Jim Clark was from Jock McBain, who had been purchasing Lotus sports cars from us for two or three years. He mentioned this young, this young farmer, already legendary up in the borders, whom he felt was a very, very good driver. One of the first occasions I really met Jimmy was when he came down to Brands Hatch to try out a Formula 2 car on behalf of Border Reavers, who were thinking of purchasing one. There and then, I was most impressed with the way he drove the car, especially as it was his first single-seater drive and also his first drive at Brands Hatch. He was steady, consistent, and basically just downright competent. At around the same time, he drove a Lotus Elite for the Border Reavers team at Le Mans, doing very well indeed. And my impression of his performance then was reinforced when he drove at Brands Hatch one boxing day in an Elite. Now, he very sort of coquettishly here says, I, was, I drove in that same race. He doesn't mention that he won it, He just says, Mm. I drove in that same race and we had quite a dice together. Immediately afterwards, I asked him if he would like to join Team Lotus. This was during the period when Team Lotus was in a stage of transition from being a racing team in which I was the principal driver and thus was virtually, virtually being run for my benefit to the point where I was sponsoring a team for other drivers. This transition therefore coincided with Jimmy coming to Lotus and therefore he was the first driver to actually come to the team as its principal driver. So we really came of age together. Lotus was just getting into Grand Prix racing. Jimmy was just getting into Grand Prix racing. The fact, therefore, that we were both learning together made our association very interesting and so very fruitful. Oh, there um, you go. And, and we can talk a bit more about what they achieved together. Um, but just before we do that, this is what Chapman said about Jim Clark after he died. He will always be the best. I'm sure in time someone else will come along and everyone will hail him as the greatest ever, but not for me. For me, there will never be another in Jimmy's class. It's quite Gosh. something, isn't it? 
It's quite something. I mean, it's so often, isn't it, that you need... I think um, I'm in no way comparing Verstappen to to Jim Clark because I don't believe you can compare drivers from across the eras. But the magic tends to come when you get two geniuses. So mm. you get Verstappen and a Newey yeah. together. Yeah. Or a Clark and a Chapman. Um, and... And also, I think the other thing was that it just happened at the right time because Jim Clark was was a great, great driver in the early 1960s, but he wasn't sort of he wasn't sort of revered in the early part of his Formula One career. Uh, I guess because Sterling was still there. Mm. I mean, let's not forget that the first person to win a Formula One race in a Lotus it wasn't Jim Clark, it was Sterling Moss oh. in a in a private car. Um, so Sterling Moss, Moss won a, a Formula One race in a Lotus before anybody from Lotus did. Um, but when Jimmy came good, and again, I think it's so often, isn't it, that you need the right tool for the job. And for Jimmy, that was the Lotus 25, which you mentioned earlier. And the combination of car and driver. Um, and the only thing, and the only reason he didn't, I mean, only, it's ridiculous to think that, okay, he sadly died long, long, long before his time. But nevertheless, his Formula One career was probably... Uh, well, he was certainly racing in 60 and he died in 68. So there's at least nine seasons there. Only, only won two championships. If the cars he'd been driving had held up more often, mm. no one would have been able to touch him. Mm. And, he, you know, it's like in 62, it's ridiculous. He had a revolutionary racing car. He was, by then, the greatest driver on the grid. Didn't win the championship. Mm. Because the car just broke too often. And and I think it's, you know, 67. Lotus 49 comes along. Another complete, everybody else thinking, oh my God, our cars are obsolete as of this moment. Because this Lotus 49 comes up with, Lotus 49 comes out with not just a fully stressed engine, which had actually happened before with the, with the Lotus 43, but that had a terrible 816 BRM engine in it. Um, but the DFV, mm. this production specification, um, short, stiff, strong V8. Um, and again, he didn't win the championship. It's, it's, it's funny, isn't it? And, yeah. you know, and, and you just think, how many championships did Lotus not win because of Chapman's obsession with light weighting and cutting corners? Mm. I think he once said... This might be apocryphal, might not, but I think he once said that the perfect mass for a car is a car that is so light that it completely falls to bits the moment it crosses the finishing line. Yeah, yeah. Which is actually asking for trouble, isn't it? Well, it is. It is. It's cutting the margin so far that, particularly back then, when tolerances aren't what they were are today, when metallurgy wasn't what it was, and, and, and there were some... There were some big accidents. A lot of people died in Lotus cars. Actually, not that many because through failure of the Lotus cars. You know, you think of Ronnie Peterson's death in 1978. Um, that had nothing to do with the car. Um, but quite often, you look at Sterling Moss's accident at Spa in 1960. Um, a wheel came off the car. There was a hub failure. And when they looked at the other cars, they discovered that they all had hub failures too. It was just, you know, Sterling broke his back, his nose, his legs, and everything Oof. in that crash. Um, and it was, it was just providence which allowed him to keep going. 
the the crash his goodwood crash in 1962 now nobody knows knows the cause and you know but i think because it was sterling because of where it was on the track it seems so utterly implausible that sterling made a mistake mm. so it was one of two things it was either graham hill who was overtaking at the time moving over on him and putting him on the grass sadly the footage isn't good enough to determine that or something went wrong with the car so yeah anyway um so the whole lightweighting thing i mean i think it's one of those things is it's one of those principles that no principle is indefinitely extendable so it's not always without exception a good idea to make your car lighter yeah yeah you yeah, can yeah. make there's it a too point, light isn't there there's a there point. is a point yeah. yeah um and chapman reached and passed that point yes um on to you know, to his own detriment gosh um yeah there's no question about that <clears throat> But in other ways, in another sense, it, his fanatical approach to lightweighting paid dividends. Um, and during the, the 60s and 70s, Lotus was perhaps the force. Do you think the force in Formula One? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it certainly had that potential. But as I think mm. I say, you know, too often other teams were allowed to, yeah. to get in. I mean, I think a team like, particularly in the early 70s, Tyrrell comes along. Mm. Um, a very very professionally run outfit no Jim Clark anymore and you've got a Jackie Stewart Um, and cleverly designed car with a great driver and a very very good team Um, and you know so I think they had the potential to be absolutely unbelievable but it it just didn't it just yeah Mm. it was it was actually up there it was they were probably the team to beat because Ferrari were completely off the boil by then Ferrari didn't win a championship between 64 and 75 um but other ones you know Brabham won one in 67 and then um yeah Jackie Stewart with the Tyrrell in 69 and in 71 and in 73 and McLaren started coming along with MO in 74 um they did win in 1970 but they lost the driver when Jochen Rint had that brake failure at Monza Mm. in 1970 um so yeah I mean often when I think about it I look at all they achieve and there's a bit of me which goes on to wonder how much more even than that they could have achieved if Mm. if they just made the cars a little bit more robust I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So just for the sake of getting on record, um, Team Lotus won seven F1 Constructors titles and six Drivers' Championships between 62 and 78, and the Indy 500 as well during that Yeah, era. let's not forget. Amazing. 
Um, yeah, and Indy cars had all been these very traditional mm. front-engine cars, um, and obviously all American with um, amazingly powerful but very basic four-cylinder engines. Colin went over there. Well, he went over there with a gas turbine car, um, <laughs> which which didn't win. Uh, I think Graham Hill raced that and it broke. Um, but then you know he was the first person to take a mid-engine car to Indy, mm. um, and it's '65 after a couple of attempts. Um, Jim Clark and Lotus won the Indy 500. So yeah, amazing. Mm. Well, let's um, talk about some of the specific cars. Um, and some of the innovations, because that really is what we you want to discuss when talking Chapman. Um, so the Lotus Twenty Five, the first monocoque F one car. Yeah, it was it was the first monocoque, but we have to be quite precise about that, don't we? Because it wasn't the first monocoque car. No, because that was the Lancia Lambda back in nineteen twenty two, and it wasn't the first monocoque racing car because Jaguar D types had a yeah. form of monocoque back in the fifties. I think some people called it a semi monocoque. Um, but yes, it was the first one, which instead of having a sort of spindly space frame, which you just bolted bodywork to, used the body itself mm. as a structural member with a result that the car was it, was, it was just better in every way. It was stiffer, it was stronger, it was lighter, it was yeah. better. Yeah. Um, and everything else was obsolete from that moment onwards. Uh, and that was the Lotus 25, which won the championship in, well, actually, ultimately in 63. Um, and then again... Yeah, as a Lotus 33, although that was just an Evolve 25, um, again with Jim Clark in, in 65. Um, and what about mid-engine? I don't think Lotus were necessarily the first to do that in F1, but among no, the, no, certainly among Cooper the first. No, Cooper did it. Yeah, yeah I mean, no, Cooper were doing it in the late 50s. No, they were, they were, they were when you say the, the, the sort of the first, the first Lotus to race in a Formula 1 race wasn't a Formula 1 car. That was the Lotus 12. Um, and it, I actually broke it down here somewhere. Yeah, the 12 was his first single-seater. And then he did the 16, which was designed to do, which was, again, another front-engine car. But by that stage, the 16 came along in 58. Um, But Cooper were making making mid-engine cars and winning races with mid-engine cars by then. So the first mid-engine car was the 18. And the 18 was... Yeah, it's an an amazing car, but it is the car in which... um, Sterling had that enormous accident at Spa in. It was an 18-stroke 21. It's sort of like a hybrid between the 18 and its successor that Sterling had his crash in. The 18 was the car that Alan Stacey died in at Spa in 1960, although um, I think all the reports say that he was hit by a bird, so you can hardly blame the car for that. Um, but it was ju- it was unbelievably light. I think in Formula Junior specification, because quite often what you do with these cars is you would, you know, someone would buy a kit and you could stick a different engines in it you could put a formula one engine in it or you could put a smaller engine in it mm. and go and could race in the same car in junior formula i think in formula junior specification it weighed about 770 pounds oh. now, i'm not good enough i'm not good enough to do the conversion but it's there's a great book called lotus series two um and it's talking about the 18 and they give the highest and the lowest weight and it's 770 to 980 so, so I've just checked, 770 pounds is 349 kilograms, which is extraordinarily light for a motor vehicle. That's astonishing. That's ridiculous, yeah. Anyway, there you go. Um, it's so, it's not just mechanical engineering um, at Lotus. There was an awful lot of innovative aerodynamics work going on as well. Yeah. Um, which ones do we need to, I mean, clearly the Lotus 79, the ground effect car with the skirts. 
Um, well, I mean, before that, there was the yeah. 72, yeah. Uh, which was one of the longest-lived Formula One cars. So it made its debut in 1970. It was still winning races in 74. It raced in 75, finally uncompetitive. Um, and one of the... This is just a really simple, clever thing, was he moved the radiators. Mm. They used mm. to be stuck out the front um, where the air was, and he moved them to the sides of the car. So they were, the radiators were inside the, the wheelbase. So that, I mean, that had two effects. One is it massively reduced the frontal area of the car. Um, and it also meant you could do more with the front end of the car in terms of the aero. But also it centralized the mass of those radiators. Um, and yeah, so, you know, again, they, he just stole a march and everybody else. And, and I think the other thing that you need to consider with Chapman is that certainly... I mean, something like the 25 was a pure Chapman car. But obviously, as is the way with all Formula One design, we think of today's Red Bull, RB, whatever it is, and think that's a new e-car. Well, yeah, yeah but he yeah, wasn't, yeah. you know, he's not the bloke who just sits there and does the whole thing. No. And increasingly, and particularly when you get towards um, the ground effect era, um, I think it was Peter Wall and Peter Wright, um, Colin would have had absolute sign-off for these things, but he didn't design them himself. Mm. Mm. um anymore he but what he would have done is recognized the innovations that they that they represented um and yeah something like ground effect so where you basically turn you know you seal the car to the deck um using skirts and then you use the entire body and the underside of the car as a wing mm. Uh, and you get this thing called ground effect, which essentially sucks the car onto the surface of the ground. Um, and if you've got that, and nobody else does, as he did, this, the Lotus 78 in 1977 had a bit of it, but the car that was kind of like the first proper ground effect car was the 79. And if you've got that, which they had in 1978, again, it was a Lotus 25, a Lotus 49, a Lotus 72 moment. Uh, everybody else just thinks... Oh, bloody hell, we better go away and design one of these. Mm. And so the 78 won the champion, sorry, the 79 won the championship in 1978 with Mario Andretti driving, despite the fact that they didn't finish a lot of races. Mm. I'm not even sure they even started the season because I'm not sure the car was ready. I might be wrong about that, but I don't think it was there at the first maybe couple of races. And they still won the championship, despite the fact, and I can remember talking to Patrick Head about this, um, who, who was at Williams at the time and one of the many, many... Um, engineering big cheeses with other teams who looked at this thing and just thought oh shit um and i can remember talking to patrick Headley, and he said actually the 79 okay it had an innovation on it which we couldn't compete with which is why i wanted but it wasn't actually that great a car structurally it wasn't very stiff and so what that allowed him to do was to obviously design his own ground effect car but to do it properly and have a really really stiff monocoque and that's why in 1979 when Lotus produced the success of the Lotus 80. Um, and everybody thought, well, that's just going to run away with it again. It didn't. It was a really poor car. Um, so poor, they went back to using the 79. And in the meantime, you know, Patrick had designed the FW07 and the rest is history. Starts winning races, world championships. And, um, you know, Lotus never won, and never, won, yeah. never won another championship after that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it, I just find it interesting how... If you have an innovation like that, if you have one thing on your car, a kind of unfair advantage, then until everybody else has got it, then you know that might hold sway for you. But the moment they do, 
then if that's all you've got and the rest of the car ain't great, then you open yourself to the possibility that someone will just do a better job, which is exactly mm. what Williams did, which is why yeah. Lotus had this extraordinary advantage, but never quite maximised what yeah. it could do. Yeah. yeah, as a fan of modern Formula One, it is extraordinary to think back to these times where someone would turn up with a car that basically worked differently to everything else on the grid. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what are the biggest sort of points of difference we have now? Maybe, you know, a double diffuser in 2009, that sort of thing. Um, so there, um, we, yeah, there so have the Mercedes- recently been innovations. Yeah, the, the Mercedes split compressor, that sort of thing. Exactly. But, yeah. but, but not a car that it fundamentally works differently to everything else. It must have been amazing to watch this thing turn up and just go, what is that? I, well, I'm old enough that I did. <laughs> yeah. now, I watched. I watched them. At, I watched them at Brands Hatch. Um, wow! And they broke. Um, mm. But they were with these immensely long flowing side pods, which were absolutely core to what they did. They were just. They were just so beautiful. That's mm. what I saw. I just saw beautiful racing cars. Um, beautiful fast racing cars with guys like Mario Andretti and Ronnie Peterson driving them uh in their jps livery i i mean uh, the Lotus 79 is the reason i started smoking essentially um <laughs> it is, i mean it's you know a jps you Lotus 79. yeah absolutely um <laughs> no surprises which which brand of cigarette i first started smoking when i was a what was i 78 i was probably 12 i mean it's just shocking Bloody hell. um but you know that, that that was the effect because you just identified with it and you wanted to mm-hmm. and you know and, and the moment you mate start having a puff you knew what brand you wanted to be pulling on mm-hmm. so there wow. you go oh, and actually that's another thing we haven't we haven't forgotten we haven't even mentioned the commercial side of no. it colin chapman was the man who commercialized formula one yeah you know, yeah, we got with the gold leaf sponsorship of of the uh, of the forty nine in the in the late sixties. He recognised that his what Colin did more than anything else. What he did so brilliantly was multitasking. So he invented a thing, for instance, called the Chapman strut, which is a form of mm. rear suspension. Mm. Um, and it was so simple. It was basically it was just a strut so a damper with a coil spring outside it and then it used what was so clever about it is it used the drive shaft so it only worked at the back of the car as the lower link of the suspension mm. so the drive shaft wasn't just turning the wheels it was also forming an absolutely integral part of the suspension um something like in the um the Lotus Alain, um the dashboard was a structural element of the car <laughs> it also told you how fast you were going yeah. Um, and, and, and again, in a very different but no less uh, important and notable way, Colin realised that his cars, their aerodynamic surfaces could be used not just for slipping through the air or providing downforce, but as advertising hoardings. Mm. Same thing, isn't it? Yeah. Same thing. It's, it's multitasking. And it was just, it just, I just find it so revealing of the man's mind mm, mm. And, and just how fertile it was and how he never stopped thinking about doing things and thinking laterally and just dealing a march on everybody else and the point about multitasking perhaps not in the case of sponsorship is that if you've got one part doing two jobs that's one fewer part that you, you need to stick to your onto your car and so it's lighter and simpler exactly um, which it is genius it's so it's such 
brilliant lateral thinking. It's just fantastic. And it was, that is typical of the man. Um, so we've barely mentioned the road cars. I mean, do we need to... We're not going to get through all of them, obviously. But do we need to mention a couple? Maybe some of the, the sort of innovative ones? Do we, you, you did just mention the Elan. Well, passing. I mean, the, 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 his most innovative car, um, road car, was his first. Um, the Elite. Mm. Um, which was not just a full monocot road car. It was a full, and to date, I believe, the only fiberglass yeah. monocot road yes. car. Gosh, who thought that would, that would be possible? And why? And I'm afraid, uh, I don't like asking questions on this podcast without being able to provide the answer, but I genuinely don't know. I guess it has to do with strength. But why, why is it also the most recent one? Why has no mm. one else? Mm. Someone will say that there's been some kit car that's done it, but I don't know, certainly from any recognisable mainstream manufacturer of another car which ever had a glass fiber i mean you couldn't do it now because it wouldn't even look at passing any kind of crash test but i don't know why why did chapman abandon it mm. you know because his next road car uh, the replacement for the elite the elan which came out in 1962 um had the sort of the backbone chassis which went all the way through um right up to the you know the v8 esprit they all mm. just had backbone chassis um with glass fiber bond uh, bodies bonded to them um but yeah, I mean, just so clever. Mm. Um, and the, I mean, the Elan. I think you, you, you do. So Dan does this um, series on our website called "I Have Never," and you, where you go and drive cars you've never driven. Really, yeah, well, there's the significant cars. Yeah, yeah. So you <clears> need <throat> to go and drive an Elan. Okay. Yeah, you need to go and drive, you know talk to Gordon Murray um, about the Elan, and his eyes just light up mm. um, because it was. It was a car that worked insofar as you could get in it and do a distance. So it wasn't completely and utterly uncivilized like a 7 was. But it was so light and it was so nimble. Um, and it was so quick. And it was, it was just... Came along in 1962. And there, were, there was just nothing like it. Mm. Um, and some would say that there has been nothing like it. And there are lots of people today who will tell you that the greatest road car that was ever, mm. ever produced was, was the Lotus Elan. So we definitely need to... Um, good idea give that a shout out so we what did we say at the start he was no angel Colin Chapman um, and on this next point we probably have to be quite careful about what we do and don't say um, but you can't discuss Colin Chapman's life without mentioning the DeLorean scandal no it's it was sad really Colin died at the back end of 1980. Was it 82? Two, yeah. Yeah, it was. It was 82. Um, and I, I, think it's, I think it's a very, very sad end to the story because at that time, you know, he had, he'd just been through the whole Lotus 88 saga. This was his twin chassis Formula mm. 1 car, which was, again, it was so, so clever. Every time I say this about the twin chassis car, someone, else, some, someone gets in touch and goes, you got it wrong. Um, and I probably have, but nevertheless, the essential thing was if you wanted, um, ground effect to work really, really well, you had to have a completely rigid platform. Yeah. Um, because otherwise, um, the air, the ceiling wasn't properly done and, uh, the air surfaces were disturbed. But the problem with that was that basically meant the best car to provide that was a car with almost no suspension, which mm. made it undrivable. So he did a car with two chassis. And the driver sat in one on top of an, on top of another, so the driver w- was 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 able to operate the car on, on, on because he had one chassis which was sprung. Um, 
sitting on top of another which which was massively more stiffly sprung but it, although it practiced for a couple of races it got slung out um and uh the other thing about that car was it was the first carbon fiber formula one car people always say that it was the mclaren mp4 stroke one uh it wasn't the mp4 stroke one was the first carbon fiber formula one car to race mm. but the lotus 88 was the first carbon fiber formula one car and it wasn't its fault that it didn't race and the other thing was the mclaren um got someone else to do that for them they got a company called the hercules corporation in america to do it for them lotus did it all themselves in-house uh and so so yeah back to the point about you know getting off the delorean thing so he'd just been through all of that um the the championship winning days were increasingly fading into the past clearly the 88 was never going to go anywhere um the recession um of the early 1980s had absolutely mullered the road car business um the company was in terrible trouble um and i suspect that like an awful lot of people put in that sort of situation um he found himself doing things which you hope otherwise he might not have done yeah yeah. and and you're absolutely right we do have to be careful about this Um, but what we know is that lotus got involved in delorean he designed this bonkers car um which didn't work and so he went to chapman and said help Uh, and chapman redesigned the car based it around um yeah basically the internal you know the innards of an esprit um and then put that um stainless steel body on top of it um and you know and and, and the key point to remember is that delorean was being funded by the british government and so there was an awful lot of public money involved delorean then got stung by the fbi um filmed trafficking or you know offering to sell vast amounts of cocaine to someone who turned out to be an fbi agent so that was the end of delorean although because it was entrapment either the trial collapsed or it never even went to trial mm. so delorean was never tried anything, but his reputation was completely torpedoed and that sort of thing um and then chapman dies and while they're sort of sifting through the wreckage of the whole delorean thing they discover that chapman is being paid by delorean through some panamanian company and i don't know the ins and the outs of it. what i do know is that the trial judge said if chapman were around and be brought to trial he would have likely have got 10 years yeah that's right yeah so it's a it's a sad sad end yeah if and and so i i I just have to do this because when i was the editor of motorsport five thousand years ago well it wasn't quite that long ago but it was um it was the end of the 1990s somebody a well-known motoring journalist came to me (laughs) um with a story he sent the story i should have kept it um which basically proved he said that chapman didn't die oh my god (laughs) right he just disappeared somewhere uh caribbean yeah um and wow he he provided data to show that an aircraft had mysteriously left without filing a flight plan from the runway at hethel um and apparently Chapman was on board it and he faked the whole thing because he knew the game was up and blah, blah, blah. I, for the record I don't believe a word of it um, <laughs> I didn't publish a word of it but there yeah. are nevertheless um, there are those um, who but then if, when it, whenever anybody important anybody interesting or important from 
from I mean, even Hitler. Um, there are thousands of people who tell you that he um, yes. didn't die. Um, but no, you know, Chapman did not. And it's a sorry end to the story. Um, mm. Mm. You know, he, he was never tried, but, you know, but it, it did taint his reputation. And, you know, and for his, for his son, Clive, who now runs Classic Team Lotus, has been very kind to, to me and to us over the years and is a you know, thoroughly good bloke. Um, can't be... It must be a bit uncomfortable to think how I think about a the fact he lost his father at such a young age. I think he was fifty four, um, yeah. and all the circumstances, not just the DeLorean and stuff, but the fact that you know the race team wasn't um, at anything like its peak anymore. The road car business was in terrible trouble, and so on and so on. It's a kind of sad end to what had been such a stellar career. Mm. It is a sad end indeed. And we haven't explained the DeLorean thing in detail here, but there's so much about it online. Um, you can just go and research it yourself if you want to know more. But um, it, it was Fred Bushell, the Lotus accountant, who supposedly masterminded the whole thing. Um, and he did go down. <clears throat> he actually uh, pleaded guilty and he did do time. Um, now, just final there are, point. There are, there are, there are <clears throat> people who will tell you that Bushel yeah. took the rap for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah, you, you um, read that. And, yeah. and, and, and that he, he knew that as far as he was concerned, um, the game was up, and that he was in a position to yeah, take, the, you know, take the heat for a lot of other people. I, so I don't know. I don't have yeah, an opinion. Yeah, but it's, yeah, it's yeah. just an interesting. It's just another strange dimension to all that was going on at the time. So final word on the DeLorean thing. I, I did an interview <clears throat> a couple of years ago last year, don't know, with um, former Williams F1 engineer, Frank Durney. I did this for the Intercooler, and it's still um, available on the app and website. Just The story is called Finding His Flow. You can just search that and you'll find it. It's an interview with Frank Durney. Um, <clears throat> and he recalls, in 1982, um, he was sent on behalf of Williams to an FIA meeting in Paris. Um, it, this is what he says. Everybody was there. There were three Formula One Constructors Association representatives, and I was one, a 32-year-old, very wet-behind-the-ears engineer. The other two were Bernie and Colin Chapman. We were flying to Paris wow. in Chapman's wow. aeroplane. I'm sitting in the back just listening while Colin regales Bernie with stories about how clever his accountant, Fred Bushell, had been in doing deals with DeLorean. Maybe not quite clever enough. Dearing me. Dearing me. Um, <clears throat> okay, so we're running out of time, but... It occurred to me that neither one of us had ever met Colin Chapman. No. Um, he died several years before I was born. But I, I thought that one of our writers presumably did spend some time with him. And I just wanted to get um, the thoughts, the impressions of somebody who at least met the bloke. Uh, and Mel Nichols did exactly that. He, um, I, I think he probably met him more than once. Um, and Mel, thank you so much for sending these um, impressions across I gave you next to no time to do this, but you've been very generous in sending across um, some impressions and also a very sort of revealing anecdote. So I'll just run through this quite quickly. Most of all, says Mel, what always struck you about Colin Chapman was his energy and urgency. It was obvious he had no time to waste. If you were talking, he got straight to the point, wasted no words, answered questions quickly, but showed his disdain if he lost interest and promptly turned his attention elsewhere. He was polite, even charming, if he had something he wanted or thought you were worth spending time on. You always knew at once that you were in the pre presence of a sharply intelligent man. He said, 
um, he never saw him saunter. You know, he, <laughs> he was always moving quickly. So the anecdote. I first met him in May 1974 when he introduced the new Lotus Elite to the press and took some of us out for a few laps um, around Hethel. It was a proud moment for him, but it would soon become embarrassing. The demo car was otherwise engaged, so he'd swiftly purloined the elite assigned to Lotus's then-chairman, Sir Leonard Crossland. He drove us, us being um, a couple of other journalists, swiftly out onto the track and immediately got into it, driving fast and smoothly. His style had become Lotus style. Into the last of three fast left-handers, just as he commented, a bit of reverse camber here, the elite's rear broke away. Colin caught it nicely, it swung the other way, and he corrected that with a little less opposite lock, all perfectly done, showing us that his new car was a safe, pleasing handler, and why he'd been so good at his peak when he'd raced his own cars, as we discussed earlier. A little further on, at about 100 miles an hour down the straight, there was suddenly a loud ripping sound, followed by what seemed like something banging on the roof. What the hell was that, Colin said. After a bit of a debate, LJK Setright, one of the passengers, suggested correctly that the windscreen's top strip might have been torn loose by the air pressure. It could be, said Colin. With four up, the angle of incidence is more positive. But in that case, why has it never happened before? It was a neat demonstration of his logical and analytical mind in action. And as the elite chrome strip flapping drove back to the watching assembly of Lotus engineers, journalists and directors, including a mortified chairman Crossland, horror froze the Lotus people's faces. Colin's scant tolerance for failure was well known. Some must have wondered if they'd still be employed at the end of the day. He got out, looked at the trim strip and said curtly to an engineer, make sure it never happens again. He carried on talking to us politely, but he was distracted and his mood far less chipper. We wondered what bollocking went on behind the scenes later. <laughs> well, I think that says it all, doesn't it? Yeah. It says, I mean, there, 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 is, there is all of Chapman from the car, the driver, the character. That's the man, isn't it? Mm, indeed. Ah, oh, goodness me. Um, so he was awarded a CBE in the 1970 New Year's Honours for services to exports, actually, not to motor racing or oh, anything else, but to exports. Um, and it was on the 16th of December 1982 that he suffered a fatal heart attack. He left his wife, Hazel, two daughters and a son. Um, I, I, I cannot get my head around the fact that he was 54 years old when yeah. he died, only 54, and he achieved all of that in his life. That is extraordinary. That is, a, that is a, a truly remarkable life, isn't it? Yeah, a truly remarkable man. Wow. So there you go. That's the story of Colin Chapman. Um, I think that's quite a good thing to do, isn't it? Pick out a really significant individual and do a bit of a, a profile. Yeah, we, we, a we've done it before once or twice, so we'll, yeah. Yeah, and we'll do more. There's no, there's no shortage of them, is there? No, not at all. Um, so, well, we'll leave it there, but thank you everybody for listening. And if you want to nominate um, the next candidate for one of these sort of biography episodes, get in touch any way you like. Um, we won't do a listener question uh, this week because it's been a very full episode. Um, but goodness me, I think it was a good one. Let us know what you think and tune in next week for another episode of the podcast. Hmm. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.